0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 and 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. If you remember, the church started out of great adversity, but they're strong and they're faithful because of that great adversity. And this early epistle is written to encourage them in that faithfulness, and to also help them understand more about the things of the Lord. Last time, Paul began this letter by giving thanks to God for these Thessalonian believers, especially as he remembers their active and growing faith, love, and hope, which are all vital marks of true saving faith. Let's find out what Paul says next as he continues to thank God for these believers. We'll start out in verse 2 just for review. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And then look, verse 4, <clears throat> knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Stop there. Why? Because here we see the ultimate reason that they gave thanks to God. Why? Why? Their election by God. Isn't that interesting? You see, this is the real reason why these Christians and any Christian have faith, love, and hope because they've been elected by God, they've been chosen by God, and that's the basis for everything else. This doctrine is very highly misunderstood today, but biblically, this doctrine is an important doctrine. If you remember back when we started Ephesians, Paul starts off that letter by giving thanks and praise to God for many, many wonderful things. And the first thing that Paul mentions is this doctrine, how God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So again, this is an important biblical doctrine that's highlighted throughout the Word of God. And according to Paul, we should not only like it, but we should also greatly praise God for it. Now, note this. The issue isn't Is this doctrine in the Bible? That's not the issue. I mean, everyone knows that this doctrine is found in the Bible. Because words like election, chosen, and predestination are found throughout the Scriptures. That's not the issue. The issue is this. The issue is this. What does the Bible say and mean when it talks about this? Right? I believe the Bible is clear, and I hope to convince you by the Word of God of that truth today, even if you don't understand all of it. That said... This doctrine is highly misunderstood and misrepresented today. And even though Paul loved it, many today hate it. When some of my old friends hear that I believe in the doctrine of predestination or divine election, they look at me like I've gone mad. And then they jump to a bunch of really bad conclusions about what they think that I believe. But here's the thing. I believe in this doctrine predestination, divine election, us being chosen by God because of what the Bible says and only because of what the Bible says. And that's the issue, right? What does the Bible say? Not what do I want the Bible to say and not what do I hope the Bible says, but what truly does the Bible say? And then our call is to adhere to that alone because that is our one authority and that is our one rule for living and the Bible is the truth of God. So side note, I grew up never hearing, never, ever hearing words like election, predestination, or God choosing us, never, 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 never in church, never. When I went to Bible college, this doctrine was talked about, but it was always talked about negatively, and it was never, ever portrayed biblically. That's what most people do. They say that this doctrine means a whole bunch of things that it doesn't mean, but again, our call is to stick to the Word of God, to not jump to unbiblical conclusions and to take God at His word. We often think, well, if predestination is true, then that must mean that we're all puppets on strings. It must mean that we have no freedom and we have no accountability. It must mean that we don't have to evangelize. That, that it, it must mean that God is mean and that God is cruel. And then, because of those unbiblical conclusions... We warp this doctrine to fit with our understanding and to fit with our wrong conclusions. None of that's good. None of that's good. Here's the doctrine in a nutshell. Ephesians 1.4 God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. There it is. Need anything else be said besides that? I mean, if you take that at face value, and you should then it's all very clear. God chose us. Who chose? God chose. Who is us? Christians. Christians. <laughs> A little, little harder, right? No, Christians are the us because Paul is specifically writing to the Ephesian believers. He didn't write this to non-Christians. No, he wrote this to Christians specifically. When did God choose us? What does it say? Before the foundation of the world. How much more clear can you get? I recently heard a preacher preach on this particular passage in Ephesians 1. God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. He said this. He said, when did God choose us? And the preacher's answer was, when we believed. Say what? That's not what the text says. Right? The text is clear. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. But he changed the text because... If he says that God chose us when we chose him, when we believe, then that turns this doctrine upside down and makes it much more palatable to people. But that's not the right thing to do. That fits his narrative of what he wants the text to say, but that's not what the text clearly says. And that happens all the time. My prayer is that we will be radically committed to the Word of God, that we will trust our good God, that we won't jump to unbiblical conclusions, and that we will believe what God tells us in His Word regarding this doctrine that we should praise Him for. I want to begin by focusing on the nature of God Himself. Why? Because our real problem in understanding this doctrine is is that it delves into the realm and the mind and the ways of God, which is way, 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 way beyond us. He is infinite and eternal And we are human. You see the problem with that? He is holy and perfect in his whole being and in all of his ways at all times. But again, we are human and we cannot begin to fathom his ways. See, God is larger and more powerful than us in ways that we can't begin to remotely comprehend. Think about this. The universe contains about 125 million galaxies with each galaxy containing hundreds of millions of stars. But God holds all of that in the palm of his hand. Our God is infinite in his being and he is without any limit or end and we are human. 1 Kings 8:27 Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold heaven and the highest heaven can't contain him not even close. Jeremiah twenty three twenty four. can a man hide himself in hiding places so that I do not see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord, and the answer is yes, he does. Think of this, God's entire essence is at every moment of time present in its fullness in every point of space throughout the entire universe, for the eyes of the Lord are in every place, Proverbs fifteen three. Can you even begin to fathom that? Our God is beyond any limitations like we are. He never had a beginning and He will never have an end. And He, even though He governs us by time and even though He numbers our days, He Himself is beyond and above time. That thought alone will blow your mind. Also, He never learns anything new and He never forgets anything He currently knows for He always knows everything. <clears throat> On top of that, God is absolutely independent. He exists in and of Himself without reference to or dependence upon anything else. He is absolute, self-existent, and the very ground of all being. In Acts 17.25, Paul says that God isn't served by human hands as though He needed anything. In other words, God has gotten along just fine for past eons without us. And He will do just fine in the centuries to come whether people offer Him their services or not. As one noted, while He graciously gives His redeemed children the privilege of serving Him, He does not need any one of us to accomplish His purpose. See, God doesn't need anything from us, not a thing. We call this the solitariness of God. In the beginning, God. Okay, but what happened before the beginning? Well, God dwelt all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, fully satisfied without us. As A.W. Pink observes, there was no heaven where his glory is now particularly manifested. There was no earth to engage his attention. There were no angels to sing his praises. There was no universe to be upheld by the word of his power. There was nothing, no one, but God, and that not for a day, a year, or an age, but from everlasting. During the past eternity, God was alone, self-contained, self-sufficient, and in need of nothing. Had a universe, or angels, or humans been necessary to Him in any way, they also would have been called into existence from all eternity, but they weren't, and look. Creating them when He did added nothing to God, essentially. And that is absolutely right. And while He created us and everything else according to His own good pleasure, it wasn't because He needed anything or because He was lacking anything, not in any way. He is glorious enough in Himself without us. (laughs) See, God is infinite, eternal, independent, and perfect. He is magnificent, and He is all-glorious. He is distinct from all else in the entire universe, and therefore, he is wholly unique, he alone. Okay. But what about us? Well, man, humanity, is infinitely small. When we are compared to God, man is less than nothing. As the Lord said in Job, to Job in Job 40 verse 1, shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, Job, let him answer it. See, it's not good to rebuke God. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer to you? I put my hand over my mouth. That's true wisdom. In other words, God is God and you are not. And you can't begin to fathom God and the ways of God not even close. No, your call is to trust Him. We're limited, see. And we can't begin to comprehend the enormity of the world or of the universe or of the God who created the world and the universe with just a word. See, man has fallen. Sin mars us through and through and our whole nature is corrupted by sin. And our finite temporal fallen condition greatly hinders our ability to understand the infinite, eternal, perfect creator and all of his ways because it's far beyond us. Think of this. How can you begin to fathom or explain the Trinity? The Bible's very clear in the fact that we worship one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can three be one at the same time? I don't know. Right? I just, I trust God with that because His Word is clear. But just because our tiny, uh, Finite, sinful human minds can't comprehend it doesn't make it not true. Or what about this? The incarnation. How Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person. How is that possible? That doesn't make sense to me. But look. Even though we can't fully comprehend how Christ is 100% God and 100% man simultaneously without intermixture or without dilution of the natures, we still believe that. Why? Why do we believe it? Because the Scripture teaches it very, very clearly. See, the proper response is never to reject the clear and central teaching of Scripture about the Incarnation or about any other hard-to-comprehend doctrine but to simply recognize that it's going to remain a paradox to us for now, that this is all that God has chosen to reveal to us about it because we can never truly grasp it anyhow, but even so, it's still biblically true and we accept it. The same is true with this doctrine of divine election. God has revealed this doctrine to us. This doctrine is beyond us because it delves into the realm of the eternal God, And our call isn't to ignore it or to twist it so that it fits our understanding, but to believe what God has told us and then to trust Him with what He has told us. So look at the text. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. The Greek word for election literally means to select out, to single out, or to choose out of. The idea of this word speaks of taking a smaller number out of a larger number. That is literally what this word means. This ties in with that word predestination, which means to determine beforehand. I I mention this because this relates closely to being chosen or divinely elected by God. It's the same idea. The idea is this, that in the counsels and purposes and good pleasure of God, He sovereignly chose the saints out of the mass of humanity, and He predetermined their destiny to be His beloved children that before God had created anyone or anything, He decided that He would choose or elect or predestine some humans to become His adopted children. Note that God has always done this. I mean, out of all the people in the world, God chose Israel. God first chose Abraham from everyone else. Later, God chose Jacob over Esau. Regarding Israel, Deuteronomy 7, six and 14.2 says... The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Now, why? It says, not because you were better than any other people and not because you were more attractive than any other people. That's not why. No, instead, God chose Israel simply simply because He determined to set His love on them based on the good pleasure of His will. That's what it says. This doctrine is nothing new. When you come to the New Testament, you have the same kind of language regarding the church. For only the church is called the elect, the chosen of God. If you remember back in Ephesians 2, Paul wrote these wonderful words. You were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made us alive. So first, you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That is an absolute statement. See, Paul doesn't mean that you were merely in danger of being dead, or that you were just partly dead, or even mostly dead. No, Paul means that you were absolutely dead. Who's dead? Everyone's dead. And while only Christians have been made alive, everyone is dead, for this state of spiritual death is universal. Talking about all of humanity from top to bottom. Everyone is dead apart from Christ, and there are no exceptions. Now, obviously, Paul isn't talking about physical death here, but instead, Paul is clearly talking about spiritual death. So what happened? To understand that, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There, God created Adam to rule over all of creation. He was the one who named the animals. He was the one who named Eve. Adam was the head, the leader of that first family. If you remember, God said to Adam and Eve, do whatever you want here in Eden. It's all for you, but there's one thing that you need to know. That tree over there, that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't touch that tree and definitely don't eat of its fruit. If you do, you're going to die. Now question, why put that tree there in the first place? The tree was there to test Adam and Eve's heart, to test their obedience to their good God. And that was needed. That test was needed. James Boyce said, the presence of this tree would have reminded Adam that he was not his own God and that he was responsible at all times to his maker. Another writes, abstinence from the fruit of one tree was a kind of first lesson in obedience that man might know he had a director and Lord of his life, on whose will he ought to depend, and in whose commands he ought to acquiesce. He says, this truly is the only rule of living well and rationally, that men should exercise themselves in obeying God. So, the tree was there as a test, and putting the tree there was a reasonable test. I mean, God gave permission to eat of every tree except this one. But banning this one tree made Adam and Eve morally accountable to God, see? And they needed that. But guess what? Adam wants the one thing he can't have. He wants the fruit from that forbidden tree. Remember what happened? The serpent tricked Eve into eating that forbidden fruit. She gave some to to Adam, and he ate some of that fruit. But as the leader, the responsibility for all that falls onto Adam. And so, according to Romans 5.12... It was through one man, Adam, that sin entered the world. That means that when Adam ate the fruit, he fell from a state of innocence into a state of guilt. He fell from grace to judgment. He fell from life to death. He fell from heaven to hell because that's what sin does. And look, Adam's sin has affected everything, the world, and every human in it. Why? Because by one man, sin entered the world. So question, why do I sin? You sin because you have a sin nature. Because when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam disobeyed, you disobeyed. When Adam fell, you fell, and so did I. When he died, you died as well. No, we were not there in the garden. But because we're descendants from Adam in his family... We suffer the consequences of what Adam did. Thanks a lot, Adam, right? Thanks a lot. See, when Adam was created, he stood as the representative for the whole human race. What happened to him happened to all of us because in God's eyes, he was appointed to act in the place of everyone who would later come after him. Picture it like this. Adam was the driver of the bus of humanity. When he drove the bus over the cliff, we all went down the cliff with him. And so, every one of us is born with a sin nature. And we're not naturally good, we're naturally wicked. And apart from the grace of God, we are all hopelessly lost in sin. In fact, according to the Word of God, we are dead in sin. See, you're not evil because you do evil. You do evil because you are evil. Your basic nature is corrupt and depraved. That that's your inheritance from Adam. And that's true for all of us. It's for all, Romans 5:12 says, "Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned because of Adam." And so, everything has changed. For Adam and Eve, yes, but for all of us as well. Innocence lost because of one sin. And when that happened the first time because of trespasses and sins, everything changed. For the worse. But look, not only did sin infect Adam, and not not only did sin infect the entire human race and the entire earth, sin also has drastic consequences because, as the Word of God says, the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. So because of sin, Adam and Eve are now going to die physically, which they eventually did. But look, when they sinned, at that moment they themselves died spiritually. And look, every person who is born after Adam and Eve will be born alive physically, but they will all be dead spiritually. Every single person. That's strong language right there, isn't it? Dead. Dead. Not weakened, incapacitated, disabled, or sick. No. Dead. Devoid of life. True spiritual life. And even though... Non-Christians are alive physically, look, in the area that matters most, the soul, they have no life. They're blind to the reality, demands, and glory of Christ, and they don't love Him because they can't love Him, because a corpse can't love anything. As John Stott says, we should not hesitate to reaffirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. And that's right. That's biblically true. Dead in sin, that's every one of us apart from Christ who alone gives life. Look, a dead person has eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, lips but cannot speak, feet but cannot move. In the same way, the spiritually dead have within them no ability to respond to God Because they are dead. And that is our reality without Christ. That's everyone's reality without Christ. According to Romans 3, we are dead and we have no ability to awaken ourselves and to save ourselves, which makes sense because that's what being dead means. Note that this doesn't mean that non-Christians can't be nice or kind or benevolent or courteous. No, no, no. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that they can't save themselves. They can't awaken themselves out of what and who they are. They can't come out of this mess of spiritual deadness unless God comes in and awakens them out of it. But look, just as God breathed into lifeless dust to give life to Adam, the Lord gives spiritual life to His chosen ones, to those who were once spiritually dead. And that's something that God alone can do. We don't have the ability to bring life from death And a dead person can't will himself to breathe. A truly lifeless person can't awaken himself from the dead. And neither can we give life to a spiritually dead person. But guess what? God can do it. God can do it. Now, many Christians today view salvation as a joint project between God and men. God has done all that he can, and the rest is up to the sinner. They don't view the sinner as dead, according to Scripture, even though Scripture says it. But rather... They view the sinner as sick and wounded. Like a drowning man, there's still life in him. He can grab the rope if we throw the rope to him. But if he refuses to cooperate, even God can't save him. That's an unbiblical view of salvation. The biblical view is summed up in this. God made us alive. That's what it says. God made us alive. As the angel announced to Joseph concerning Jesus in Matthew 1.21, he, Christ, will save his people from their sin. He didn't say... He will do all that he can, but he's limited by the sinner's stubborn will. He didn't say that. He didn't say he will throw the rope to everyone, but they got to grab the rope to be saved. It doesn't say that. God isn't frustrated in heaven, wishing that he could do more. I'd, I'd really like to save Saul of Tarsus, but boy, that guy is so stubborn. What happened? God went after Saul. God opened Saul's spiritual eyes. God knocked Saul down and made him blind physically for a time, but he gave Saul spiritual sight forever. See, the hope of the gospel is that God saves sinners. We are dead, but God, he made us alive, as Steve Cole noted. We need to understand that salvation is not a matter of a spiritually sick sinner deciding to take medicine. If it were, we could perhaps take him Um, talk him into making that decision it's not a matter of a drowning man grabbing the life ring who wouldn't grab it if he knew his desperate condition rather the sinner is a corpse (laughs) floating face down in the water (laughs) he's dead god must raise him from the dead and according to scripture that's absolutely right And the good news is that God can indeed raise the dead. He can impart new life to dead sinners. God made us alive even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And good news, He will make some of us alive. And all that He gives life to come to Him in saving faith. That's called the doctrine of regeneration, which is summarized in this way. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace where believers become new creatures in Christ. It's a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through the conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance towards God and faith in the Lord. John 1 says that people received Jesus because they were first born of God. See, a person isn't born again by virtue of a human decision. But the believing ones were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, see, When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he says that the new birth is mysterious, much like the movement of the wind, and it's a supernatural work. James, Peter, and Paul also make clear that new birth, regeneration, is a spiritual work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the dead sinner that produces a change of heart that's the equivalent of being brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. Repentance and faith are the evidences of this spiritual life that, that's been planted into the soul of the person. And then look, all that God regenerates come to Him in saving faith because now they see clearly. Now they are awakened to God and to the glories of God. Now His grace is irresistible to them now that they can truly see it. See, God chooses them before the foundation of the world. In time, God awakens them and All that God awakens lovingly come to him in repentant faith. Some might say, I don't believe that. I believe that God chooses everyone for salvation, but they can still choose to reject him by their own free will. But that's not a biblical alternative. Look what it says in Romans 8, 28 through 30. We Christians specifically are called according to his purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. And whom He predestined, those He also called, and whom He called, those He also justified, and whom He justified, those He also glorified. And here we see that all those that God foreknows and all those that God predestines will come to Him in in saving faith. One event links directly to the other. Note that foreknowledge doesn't mean that God simply sees ahead of time. But instead, foreknowledge is reserved for those matters which God favorably, deliberately, and freely chose and ordained. Look, Acts 2.23 speaks of Christ himself as being delivered to be crucified by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, if foreknowledge simply means that God looks ahead and sees what's going to happen, that then must mean that God looked down through the corridors of time and said, Oh, will you look at that? Christ is going to give His life. Look at that. Well, if He's going to do that, I guess I'll just make Him Savior. That's not not what happened. Foreknowledge speaks of a predetermined choice regarding Christ and regarding us. Just as Christ was foreknown, so too is every believer. Foreknowledge clearly means that God determined before time those whom he would have a saving relationship with based solely on the kind intention of his will. Talking about those that he chose to set his love on before the world began. And look, all that God foreknew are predestined, and all who are predestined are effectually called to him, and all that those who are called are justified and they all come to saving faith. And then all that those who are justified will be glorified in the future. So one leads to the other. And these things are only true of believers. So salvation is all of God from start to finish, from eternity past to eternity in glory. Now, note, God doesn't choose everyone because not everyone will be glorified. And the text clearly tells us that those whom God chooses will all be glorified. See? Others might say, but but John, doesn't 2 Peter 3.9 say that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance? Yes. Yes, it says that. Is that then a contradiction with the doctrine of divine election? What do you think? No. So what does it mean? Well, some say that this is speaking specifically about His people, God's people, and therefore it only can relate to them. And that's true. I mean, that's true. Peter is indeed writing to the beloved of God, which is clear in the previous verse, and that's very specifically written to Christians. So they say that Peter's talking about how God is patient and long-suffering toward us in Christ, specifically towards you, the believer, and he's not willing that any of you who believe should perish, but that all of you should and will, should and will come to repentance. So this is talking about God's heart towards his people, Christians, and towards all who will believe in the future. And that's true. And it's a good point, but I think it goes deeper than that. I think that while this is Not speaking about God's decreed will, it's indeed speaking about God's desired will. And even though it won't happen because many will indeed perish, it does express the heart of the Lord. See, because He's God, He's a God of justice and judgment on sin and wrath against wickedness, but His heart of compassion is clearly seen throughout the Bible too, and we can't ignore that. Before the day of the flood and the judgment of God on the whole earth, the Lord sent Noah, who preached for 120 years to the people. Think of that. Warning the people for 120 years about the coming judgment and pleading with people to repent and turn to God. That's God. Look at the life of Jonah. The reluctant prophet Jonah said to the wicked city, Yet 40 days and God will destroy you. And when the king and the people turned in repentance, it says God spared them. Jonah was angry at that. But God said, Jonah, why should I not be moved with compassion over a great city with thousands of little children? And that's the heart of God. Preacher W.A. Criswell says that there's a trauma in the heart of God over sinful men. In Deuteronomy 5, 29, God said, Oh, that you were, uh, there was such a heart in them that they would obey my word and keep all my commandments that it might be well with them and with their children forever. That's his heart. In Ezekiel 33, 11, God says that this, as his people were judged and sent into captivity. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his evil way and live. Oh, turn, turn you from your evil ways, for why will you die? That's the heart of God. We see that again when Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and predicts their coming destruction in Matthew 23. You can picture his heart when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathered her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. So, when God sees man fall into sin and iniquity and wickedness and unbelief, and then finally into judgment in hell... God sees him with a bleeding and weeping heart. That's the heart of God. Oh, yes, God loves his justice too, but please don't forget this, the compassion of God, the mercy of God in the process. So this expresses God's heart of desire, but not his heart of decree. See, there are many things that I want that express my heart, but they don't happen. I never wanted to discipline my children when they were little. I didn't like it, but I did it, sometimes. (laughs) Because that has to happen. Because what needs to happen supersedes what I want to happen. And here we find that while God has a heart for the lost, that's His heart of desire. Even so, God's decree is that only some will be saved for reasons that are beyond us and that are beyond our human understanding. But God still has a heart for those who reject him, and he certainly takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In the end, this verse definitely doesn't cancel out all the other verses that tell us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So here's the doctrine. Finally, God, before the foundation of the world, chose to make certain individuals the objects of his unmerited favor or special grace. That's done not because of anything they would do, but because of His own sovereign will. God could have chosen to save all men, and He could have chosen to save no one. But instead, He chose to save some and leave the others to the consequences of their sin. God gets all the credit for those who are saved, and those who reject Him are fully responsible and accountable for their rejection of God. See, God doesn't go down the list of humans and say, okay, you get to go to heaven and you go to hell. And you three go to hell and, and you go to heaven. And you ten go to hell and and you one go to heaven. No, no. Instead, the Bible teaches that all people are already on their way to hell. And God in his mercy chose to rescue some and the rest he leaves to the consequences of their sin. not because of something God did or because of a decree that God made. No, but because they continue in their sin and they are fully guilty. See, Election is not a decree to destroy. No, it's a decree to save. And this isn't an indication uh, of any dislike toward those who aren't chosen. No, it's not a rejection with disdain. It simply highlights God's mercy on the ones who are chosen. Look, according to the Bible, God doesn't send anyone to hell because that person is not elect. No, he sends them to hell because they are sinners who willingly rebel against him. Is it wrong for God to send rebellious sinners to hell? No, it's right for Him to do so. Okay, then why would it be wrong for Him to plan to do so? Note this, that while the Bible is clear about the sovereignty of God and salvation, it's also clear that man, humanity is fully responsible. God's sovereignty doesn't cancel out human responsibility. And so, biblically, people are responsible for what they do with the gospel. And those who reject Jesus do so voluntarily. Jesus said, you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life, John five forty. He told unbelievers, unless you believe that I am God, you shall die in your sin, John eight twenty four. See, the reason people are lost isn't because of something God did or because of something God didn't do. No, it's because of their own unwillingness and rebellion. So biblically, that unwillingness is on them, not on God. So both divine sovereignty in salvation and human responsibility are true. How is that possible at the same time God knows. (laughs) We are small and sinful. God is God. And God has this all figured out. So we take God at His word and we trust God with that. He's got this, see? And our call is to trust and obey. I remember someone once said this about me. Clearly. John Kyle believes that God drags people kicking and screaming into heaven. They actually wrote it down and sent that out. I definitely do not believe that, and I have never, ever, ever believed that, because the Bible never teaches that. Those whom God chooses love Him with passion, see, because He made them alive. Uh, I've heard this. John Kyle believes that we're puppets on strings, and we aren't accountable for our decisions. That is absolutely not true, because the Bible is clear that we are accountable and responsible for our decisions and for our lives. John Kyle doesn't believe in evangelism, because if God chooses, then it doesn't matter what we say, and it doesn't matter what we do. That's absolutely not true, because the Bible is very clear that God uses means in bringing people to Him. And biblically, we are called to evangelize the lost, to pray for the lost, to shine the light of Christ brightly, and to be like Paul, who implored people to be reconciled to God. He begged them to be reconciled to God. But they say, I chose God, I remember the day that I chose Him. Yeah, you did. But only because He first chose you to choose Him according to His Word. But, but, but that's not fair. Oh, you don't want fair. Right? None of us wants fair. I mean, I don't want anything to do with the justice of God. Remember, if any of us if all of us receive justice, every one of us would be condemned to hell for all eternity. And the fact that some are not condemned is utter mercy and that's what should be exalted. Well, I still don't get it. Well, join the club. But it's biblical. That's the issue. Is it biblical? Here's my main question when I think about this doctrine. Why didn't God just choose everyone? There's theological reasons, but but that's just my uh, emotional question. Why didn't God choose everyone? He could have. I mean, it would have been easy for him to do, for him to do what he did with all of us, for everyone else to awaken them. So why not everyone? Well, people go, well, God's a gentleman, and he won't impose himself on men's free will. And I say, well, by all means, impose and save my soul from hell. By all means, impose. Because if he doesn't, then no one's going to get saved because we're born dead. Impose, Lord. So again, why didn't God choose everyone? Or at least, why not choose more? I don't know. But you know what? I trust God with that. I trust God with... I mean, I know better than to sit in judgment of my good God who rules the universe. He sees clearly, I don't. He's God, I'm not. My call is to trust Him. Look, I believe this doctrine because I believe it's very clear in the Bible and I put my hand over my mouth and I bow to His good providence knowing that God has this all figured out perfectly and knowing that He's good and gracious and merciful and compassionate. Some say that if that doctrine is true, and I've heard this before, if that doctrine is true, then God is a monster. because they can't comprehend it, so they jump to terrible conclusions about it. But clearly the doctrine is true, and clearly God isn't a monster. Never, never, never. Our God is holy and loving and just and pure and good. Oh, so good. And I trust Him when I can't fully understand the things that are in His realm. God has this, see? He has this. John Kyle believes in predestination. Don't go to that, church. (laughs) I do believe this doctrine. Why? (laughs) Because I see it throughout the Bible. And rather than ignoring it, and rather than twisting it to say something it doesn't say uh, to fit my lame human reasoning, I take it for what it says, and I trust God with it. Thanking Him for his His amazing grace in saving a wretched, dead, undeserving sinner like me. So look, I believe this doctrine... Only because of what I see in the Bible. But guess what? I also believe in evangelism. Passionate evangelism. I believe we are responsible and accountable for our actions and our decisions. I believe God is good all the time. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe that God put the lost in my life for a reason to save them. I believe that if you don't know Christ and you're here right now, God put you here right now for a reason. God knows what He's doing. I believe God put my kids in my life for a reason, to save them. So I will never give up hope for the lost around me, and I believe that those who are truly saved must pursue God with passion and conviction throughout their lives and never have the attitude, I'm chosen, therefore it doesn't matter how I live. No! God's people love Him. Anyone? Right, and and I believe this doctrine shouldn't scare us. no, it should cause us to rejoice and to praise God. See, divine election is an act of free love that's grounded totally in God himself, freely from his own good will. He wanted you, He wanted to save you, He wanted to adopt you as his own, and while that isn't an indictment on those that he didn't choose and predestined, it's simply pointing out the blessing on those that he did choose and predestined, and also on the greatness of his love in doing this for undeserving sinners like us. And like Paul, we should praise God and we should thank God for it, even though we can't fully comprehend it. Here's a couple of quotes that might help. Spurgeon. That God predestines and that man is responsible are two things few can see. They're believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It's just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths can't be contradictory to each other. If then I find taught in one place that everything is foreordained, that's true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that's true. And it's my folly that leads me to imagine that true truths could ever contradict each other. These two truths I do not believe can ever ever be welded into one upon any human anvil, but one they shall be in eternity." They are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them farthest will never discover that they converge, but they do converge. And they will meet somewhere in eternity, close to the throne of God, whence all truth doth spring. And then John MacArthur. I can't understand how people go to hell and they're fully responsible for rejecting Christ. And on the other hand, people go to heaven because they believe, because they were chosen by God. How does that harmonize, John MacArthur? I don't know. But that's not important that it harmonize in my mind. If I fully understood that, I'd have the mind of God. Instead, I take it by faith and I leave those doctrines where they are. And God will resolve them in the future when we know as we are known. And that's wise words right there. Look, there are some truths of God that we simply can't completely comprehend with our human minds. But just because we can't totally comprehend the truth of God doesn't mean that we reject it. No. Instead, we hold true to God's Word... And we praise him for his amazing grace. You thought I was done, I'm not. Truth number two, and we're almost done. Truth number two is this, that the proof of their election by God was that the gospel came in power, word, the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. Verse five. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Now what does that mean? It means that Paul knows that God chose them because the gospel came not only in word, but the gospel also came in power in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance and with full conviction. See, Paul's using the doctrine of election to bring them assurance. Isn't that amazing? That the doctrine that often causes disputes in the church is used by the apostle Paul as a source of comfort. So Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy came to Thessalonica and they preached the gospel to them. And what happened? Power. See, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, by means of the preacher of God, the Spirit's power went forth and changed people. He powerfully saved people. He rescued people. And it left no doubt that God was on the move. So as one said, the messengers worked in a spirit-wrought conviction and certainty as to the validity of their message, and they had unshakable confidence in its ultimate triumph. And that was all proof that the Thessalonian believers were chosen of God because the results were seen. Look, you go to Myanmar, and you observe the religion of the Buddhists, and it's all empty, and it's incredibly powerless. I mean, there is nothing there, nothing real. You go into a Buddhist pagoda or temple, you see a gold statue of Buddha. You see people worshiping that image. You see them revering something that they made with their own hands. You see them pouring water over a small statue of Buddha again and again and again and again to earn points in the next life. And it's incredibly empty and rote and powerless and meaningless. And you can see the emptiness all over the people's faces. There's nothing real there. They certainly don't have what we in Christ have Not even close. Why? Because Christ alone gives true hope and peace and joy and assurance and forgiveness and power for living and His Spirit who lives in us to help us to glory. And the contrast between the two is dramatic. See, there's no real power in false religions. But there's true power in Christianity because it's the truth and Christ is real and the gospel really is the power of God for true salvation and the spirit of God gives true power to glorify Christ until glory and we do indeed serve a risen, powerful, victorious Lord and Savior who does mighty and great things in the lives of His people, His chosen ones and it should be clear because we belong to Christ. Power. We have hope We have true joy and purpose. Paul says, I know you're the elect of God because I can see it. (laughs) There's power there. The Spirit's clearly seen. I have no doubt about it. And that's the way it should be for all of us in Christ. What about you? Finally, note this. That Paul, Silas, and Timothy were godly men. (laughs) The end of verse 5. As you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul says this with assurance. I love that. Here Paul tells them that they knew they were the elect, that, that he knew they were the elect of God because when he preached to them, he saw the power of God go forth and work amongst them. But then look at this. Paul knew that they too saw the power of God and the Spirit of God. And Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, when they looked at, listened to, and observed the preachers. See, the believers at Thessalonica were fully aware of the behavior and manner of Paul and his friends when they were among them. And it was clear, crystal clear, that they were men of God. See, their lives were a glowing testimony to the power of God for salvation and to the truth of the gospel. It was clear in their words, and it was clear in their lives. So here's a thought. Does your daily conduct at home, work, school, and everywhere else give others a clear glimpse into the transforming power of the gospel of God's grace? Wow, God is powerful I mean, look at what God has done in in Steve's life. God is powerful. See, Do people see the power of God to change lives when they see you? When people see you, do they know that God is forgiving and good and gracious and powerful because you're growing to become more and more like Christ? So question, how do we know who the elect of God are? It's not stamped on us, right? How about this? When the gospel comes in word, power, the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. In other words, when, when God is moving, when, when people are getting saved, and when those saved people are growing and maturing and hating sin and overcoming sin and loving God and loving others more and more and more and, and seeking to glorify God with their fast and fading lives, that's how we know. You can see it. Can they see it in you? Can they see it? in us. Lord, help us to make our calling and election sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word of truth. These are deep things that are hard for us to fathom at times, but Lord, I pray that clarity was given that at least we can see that Your Word is clear about this. Help us to trust You. Increase our faith and may this drive us to love, Prayer, evangelism, compassion, and an intense passion for you, our God, who is good and gracious and merciful and kind. Bless us now as we go out. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.